Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. How are we doing this morning? Good. I'm glad to see that some people came. You know, this weather, you just never know. People have other options. Um, but uh, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord with the family of God? Um, so Ben Whittinghill uh, is going to be preaching the word this morning. And uh, he is a friend of mine that goes back to college. He was my first Christian friend in college. So if you have heard my testimony... Um, I came to faith in college, and uh, I didn't know that there were, like, gatherings of Christians, student, student ministries on campus, and, um, and somebody said, hey, you know that there's, like, these, these clubs where all these Christians get together, and I was like, no, I haven't heard of these, and, uh, and so I went to the Baptist Student Union uh, at the UG, at, on UGA's campus, and um, and. I think I went to like a, a leadership meet, something like, I think it was like a get involved sort of a thing and found myself sitting across this like circle of chairs from this guy and we kept like saying the same stuff and um, felt like we were kindred spirits and the Lord just, uh, he, he connected our lives there and they've been kind of running together ever since and so uh, Ben is a pastor of Rivertown Church down in Brattleboro. Vermont, and uh, they planted that church in uh, 2014, isn't that right? 2014, and um, he is a great teacher of the Word, so you guys are in for a treat. Um, But let me read the Scripture reading, and he's going to be in other places as well, but this is sort of a preparatory Scripture reading for us. So when I finish, you can say, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You can say, thanks be to God. This is Psalm 16, uh, verses 5 through 11. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. It is such a joy and a privilege to get to be with you this morning, to get to be opening the word of God together. And I hope the novelty of getting to open God's word is not lost on you. The fact that we have the word of God is in itself a miracle. And the fact that 
God's word is open means that God is going to be speaking this morning, which is incredible news for us. And so, and I just can't get over the leadership that the Lord has given you here. Now, I'm very biased, but it's not just Ben. I mean, I'm hearing Lucius lead worship, and I'm like, whoa, I don't even need to preach. This is amazing. And so I just want to encourage you. You're, I think about the Thessalonian church when the, the Word of God came in power among them, and it was clear that the Word came in the Holy Spirit, and there was no need for anybody to tell anybody else about their faith because their faith had gone forth everywhere. And so that is happening here, and I'm praying for it to happen more and more. Um, bring you greetings from our church to yours, and um, it's just it's a sweet thing to know that in this state, the Word of God is being opened in churches all over right now, and the Word of the Lord is going forth, and Jesus is building His church, and Vermont can't do anything about it, right? The, the gates of hell, wherever they're set up, are coming down, and so um, let's get after our weapons. If you have your Bible, you can open up to the book of Acts. I'm borrowing Ben's Bible, so I think I'm going to get extra anointing today. Um, this is going to be kind of a different message. Um, I feel like I end up doing this a lot when I'm guest preaching other places, but rather than being sort of a traditional exposition of one place, we're going to be using one text as a springboard into other places in the Word of God, all with the aim of the Holy Spirit convicting what's here. But I've been praying for you that God would encourage you and that he would bolster your faith in him wherever you find yourself in this season. So I want to dive into this passage, but first I'd like to pray and ask God to speak to our hearts. Father, you are so good. So good. Jesus, you are the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. And so we, we want to come before your word with fear and with trembling, not just with sort of a rote spirituality. We don't want to coast into the presence of God. So when we ask for you to come fill our hearts or for us to build our lives on you, it's not just words. There is a form of godliness that denies the power of really walking with God. And we do not want that to be us. And so we pray that you would come and rip open our hearts and see if there's any hurtful way in us, but encourage us to a, a more steadfast trust in you. Lord, would you bind up the brokenhearted? Would you save those who are crushed in spirit? Would you stir us up, stir up sincere hearts by way of reminder this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 21, when we first preach through the book of Acts, this is like one of those chapters that a lot of churches will kind of skip over and accelerate from the ascension of Jesus to the pouring out of the Spirit because it feels filler. Judas has gone his way and betrayed the Lord Jesus, and now an apostle is being appointed in his place. And uh, my buddy Corey preached from this text, um, and he was kind of struggling like, man, it's, it's, it's hard to preach from this passage because I just want to get to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And I'm sitting there listening to this message from Corey, 
And he's preaching about trusting in the sovereignty of God when you don't know the answers. Because there's kind of this weird setup where the Spirit of God has not yet been given yet. And so they're casting lots for God's direction and they have no idea what uh, he's going to do or who's going to take Judas's spot. And so he did this whole message on trusting God when you don't know the answers. But as I was listening to this, and I want to read this passage to you, as I was listening to him preaching, I couldn't get over to Justice's situation. So let me read it to you, and then, um, and then we'll jump in. So Acts chapter 1, uh, beginning in uh, verse 21. This is um, Peter standing up to the rest of the apostles. They're in the upper room. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, to replace Judas, uh, it's going to have to be one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection, which is just a great tagline for your life and your calling, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 23, they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." Now, maybe it speaks to my own insecurities or personality flaws that as I listened to this passage, my heart went out to justice. And so I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about trusting in God when you don't like the answers, right? This is trusting God in the midst of bitter providences, specifically in the midst of disappointment or in moments in your life that seem unfair, in moments when you're tempted to discontentment or frustration, or to insecurity, or to self-pity, in moments where maybe you're tempted to doubt even the goodness of God because of the lot that's fallen to you, or because of the lack of answers in your life, because of how long you're waiting on the Lord, or you're seeing His promises coming to fulfillment for other people and not you. I want you to put yourself in Justice's shoes and really consider. We don't know how Justice responded in the immediate, but I want you to put yourself in his shoes and consider how would you have responded in this moment? I think we can think of Justice and Matthias really as apostles number 13 and 14, right? They're putting forth two to take the place of the 12. So these are guys that had been, the text says, with Jesus his whole ministry. As Jesus is commissioning out 70 to go cast out demons and to heal people and to preach the gospel, and they come back marveling that the demons have been subject to them in Jesus' name, Justice and Matthias were among those. Um, We know that sort of in the first tier, they were arguing over who was the greatest among the 12. So we know that Justice and Matthias probably knew that they weren't weren't the greatest, right? It was going to be one of these 12, but among the second tier, you know that the guys struggle with the same. And so these guys are kind of jockeying like, yeah, yeah, but on the JV team, I'm number one. So then a spot opens up. And this is not a small position, right? 
Whoever is selected is going to have his name etched on a foundation stone in the city of God. He is going to sit on one of the 12 thrones ruling over a tribe of Israel in eternity. Whoever it is is going to be part of the apostolic confession upon which the whole church of Jesus Christ would be built on for all the ages. And the other guy would be the other guy, right? The guy who's unknown except for as a footnote in Acts chapter 1. The guy who maybe is only comes up in Bible trivia for the rest of the centuries that follow. And this was not just a random choice. So before the giving of the Spirit of God, they would cast lots, and they knew that this was God's choice. They're praying, and they're saying, God, you know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these two you want for this position. So it was God that chose Matthias. And all that justice knows in this moment, he doesn't know what God is calling him to. All he knows effectively is that God was giving a yes to Matthias and a no to him. And he could be the godliest guy among all the apostles. And you just know that the enemy is not going to miss an opportunity here to break in with temptation to self-pity or insecurity or doubt, a, a temptation to want to quit, right? It's like, well, he didn't want me. So I'm, I'm just going to go back to fishing. That's what we do, right? It's like, well, I mean, if you want him, then it must say something about me. So I'm just going to go wallow in self-pity over here or, or, or just kind of stew in my discontentment. And I want to emphasize, we don't know how justice responded in the immediate. So this is more springboarding from this text into this is what happens to us. Justice may have responded perfectly. But think about what you would do in that situation. Think about in your own life, maybe you've been looked over for a job or a promotion or a bid on a job if you have your own company. Or maybe it's feeling like you're on the outside of friendships all the time and you're just living with your insecurities. Maybe it's a financial struggle that feels unfair, and it's, it's compounded by the fact that you look around you, and nobody else seems to have it as hard as you, or God seems to be providing for other people. Maybe uh, it's, a, it's a bad relationship with your parents, or maybe as a parent, you have wayward children, and other people's kids are walking with the Lord. Maybe you just don't like the season you're in. Maybe you don't like that you're single, or maybe you don't like your marriage, and you look across at other people's marriages who seem like they're better than yours. Maybe you've been praying for deliverance, for some kind of breakthrough in your life, something to change, and it seems like that thing that you're praying for is happening for other people all around you. You're praying for your relative to get healed or to be set free, and God answered the prayer for somebody else while yours only found healing on the other side of glory. And because of this specific context, I want to focus today on situations where we're prone to envy and discontentment. But I think the content of this message will apply to your life in, in any circumstances where you are prone to doubt the goodness of God because of your circumstances. So I want to look first at sort of an expose of this sin of envy and discontentment, and then I want to go into truths and realities for you to remember as an anchor for your soul as you fight these temptations. So 
First, it's envy and, and discontentment are rooted in pride and in self-pity. It's a, it's a self-orientation that is often found in a mis, misplaced identity or a misplaced purpose, sense of purpose. But envy goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The devil comes in to tempt Eve and make her feel like she is on the outside, right? That God is holding out on you. And so that, that's the enemy's first temptation is, has God really said or is God really good? He's holding out on you. He plants a seed of doubt in the goodness of God and plants in us a desire or a feeling like we need more than what God has given us. C.S. Lewis wrote this really insightful essay titled The Inner Ring that I read in the, a, a compilation of essays called The Weight of Glory. And he writes about this universal desire to be included or to be on the inside. And it's amazing. He said it, this happens in, at work and in social settings, and it doesn't really matter what the inside is. What the issue is, whatever the inside is, you just don't like being on the outside. You don't like other people having influence or authority or being on the end. And so it's why you can go from not caring about some kind of leadership position at work or some kind of fill in the blank, some group of friends, and all of a sudden you're around it. And if you're on the outside, it feels panicky. And you will say or do things to try to get in the inside or to disparage those who are. Scott Saul is a pastor, I think in Nashville, says envy is the opposite of love because it does not rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn. Joe Rigney, a pastor in Minnesota, says, in the grip of envy, we weep at those who rejoice and rejoice over those who weep. This is what happens when you have this self-orientation. Love for other people is crowded out, and I'm just thinking about me. And at the bottom, what, what God owes me, if he's really good. And I think a vivid example of this comes from John chapter 21. If you're in the book of Acts, you can flip over literally one page to your left, to John 21. Um, and this is a scene of Peter's restoration on the beach after Jesus' resurrection. And a lot of people feel like they resonate with Peter, and there's a reason for that. Peter is, in the Gospels, the real spokesman for the rest of the disciples. He's saying what everybody else thinks and feels. And so you resonate with Peter, and his life is a picture of Jesus taking somebody who's full of himself and emptying of himself through failure and then restoring him, filling him with his spirit, and sending him out. His life is a microcosm of what God is doing in your life. And so here is a scene of after he has been emptied, where he said, the enemy has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for your faith that you may stand. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. So this, has, this is the restoration process. Jesus asks him if he loves him once for every time that Peter denies him. Peter affirms over and over again, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Then he says in verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. You could skip down to verse 21. He says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And I just thinking about these instances in your life where you are tempted to comparison or you're tempted to question the goodness of Jesus in what he's told you, that you would hear all throughout your life with love and with compassion for his blood-bought children. What is that to you? You follow me. It reminds me of John 14 when Philip asked Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus looks at him and says, I am the way. This is, that is true ultimately for the way to the Father, and this is true for you in your life, that he is the way. He does not give you GPS coordinates for your final destination or even three turns from now so often. He says, you follow me. Now, the Lord has appointed for all of us different deaths by which we are meant to glorify God. Your life is filled with little deaths where God has ordained them and designed them to empty you of yourself. For you to say no to yourself and yes to Jesus. And magnifying Christ is the heartbeat of everyone who is called by his name. This is our goal in life and in death, that Christ would be magnified in my body. It's all I care about is glorifying God. But hear this. He said this to Peter to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So we have to beware of, church, a mentality that wants Jesus to increase and wants us to increase. In John 3.30, John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And God will ordain a thousand instances because he loves you to orchestrate that in your life. And rather than kick against it and push against it with self-pity and discontentment, he calls us to embrace it and say, it doesn't matter what I've appointed for other people. It doesn't matter if it feels unfair. It doesn't matter if you think you have it harder than your wife, than your coworkers, than other people around you. If I've looked over you for a ministry opportunity or a job opportunity that you wanted that other people got, what is that to you? You follow me. And so this is important. We have to untangle a holy ambition for the glory of God from a selfish ambition of glorifying God the way that I want to. And if we're not careful, we will get lost in seeking to glorify Jesus the way that we want. And we will miss out on glorifying him in taking up our cross and dying the way that he's called us to die. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's writing to this Corinthian church that's gotten just stuck in strife and in jealousy and this envy, Paul says to them, 
I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. He's talking to believers and he's saying, there's a spiritual way to walk that you're not walking in. You are acting like a non-believer. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? I, I love the way that Paul talks and describes this. You not, how many people felt like you've lived in a human way this week? He says, look, you're, you're acting like a human instead of like somebody who's been filled with the Spirit of God. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, listen to this, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And I'm just, I'm praying that that phrase, both of these, would reverberate through the halls of your heart this week and in the days to come. What is that to you? You follow me as the Lord assigned to each. He's the master. I I love that Paul is pointing out, look, I'm nothing. Ben is nothing. Lucius, I don't, I, I met you today. You're nothing, bro. Aaron's nothing. Only God. You hear that? Only God. He gives somebody a seed packet. He gives somebody else a watering jug. And your privilege is getting to scatter seed into water, but he's the only one who matters. And it is his choice who gets the seed and who gets the watering jug. As the Lord assigned to each, he is the master. And so I want to give you three realities to remember to anchor your soul in the midst of fighting this kind of discontentment and this kind of envy. The first, we're going to start real simple, but most important, remember Jesus. I love Paul's exhortation to Timothy from chapter 2, verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ. He's writing to a follower of Jesus, but it highlights our, the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ and how prone we are to forget him. And what I want you to to see and to to hear this morning is that he understands you. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He knows what it's like to be despised and rejected by men, by the very people that he created and uphold by the word of his power. They despised and rejected him. Jesus who had only ever known the acceptance of the Father, chose to be rejected by men so that you who have only ever known the rejection of men could know the acceptance of his Father. Now, Adam and Eve failed this in the garden. They, they, they lost it, right? God is holding out on you. You're tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Discontentment set in. She saw that the fruit was good for food. She took it and she ate She fell for it. Jesus is tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane with the same temptation. When he's faced with the will of God, whether or not he's going to choose his own will or the will of God, and in every place where they failed and where you failed, Jesus overcame. 
He cries out, God, if there's any other way than suffering the wrath of God in the place of sinners, make another way. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Content with the worst of fates because it was what God had allotted for him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. This is a joy of obeying his father and seeing his church. He did that for you. And he did it so that you would know that in the midst of your failing, in the midst of all your discontentment and self-pity this week, you're not condemned because Jesus is your righteousness. If he failed in this moment, you would stand condemned. You would go straight to hell. But because he endured perfectly and resigned himself to the will of God, and you're united to him by faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you've yet to place your trust in Jesus, this is what is open to you. Jesus, the gospel, is that Jesus overcame where you fail. He is the only one who is righteous before God. God so loved you that he sent Jesus into the world to live your life and to take your place so that he could bear your sin at the cross, so that if you believe on him, he takes your punishment and you get all the blessing that he deserves for his obedience. But he doesn't, the gospel does not just stop with, hey, just rest in the grace of God. Jesus overcame where you failed. That is true. But he has victory for you. He calls you to walk by his spirit and by his strength. So he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You don't have what it takes to resist envy and discontentment and self-pity. But Jesus, praise his name, does. And so seek him in his strength continually. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Walk by his spirit and not by the desires of your flesh. So first, Remember Jesus Christ. He is your righteousness. He is your high priest who can empathize with your weakness because he's been tempted in every way that you are and yet without sin so that you can draw near for his strength and for his grace in time of need. But two, remember your identity in Christ. This is big because if you untangle all of your disappointment and envy at the success of others or a longing to glorify God the way that you want to, at the bottom of your discontentment and your envy is a rooting of your identity in what you do or looking for satisfaction in the things that you do rather than enjoying Jesus and finding your identity in him alone. Before we're ever called to do or to be anything, we are called to be loved by God and called to belong to him. This is the language that Paul uses in Romans 1. Go look at it. It's amazing. You are called to be loved by God and called to be saints. And then he says, to those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. So before there's ever any other banner of your life, before you set out to do anything, he says, I've called you to be loved by me. I have called you to belong to me. This is your identity. This is who you are at the bottom. And we don't have time to dive into the text for all of these, but Scripture says that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven by God, declared righteous by Him, filled with His Holy Spirit, 
given the presence of God inside, and he's adopted you as sons of the living God. And the Bible always says sons of the living God, ladies and not sons and daughters. Do you know why? Because he's highlighting that you have the same relationship with the Father as the Son of God. He is uniting you to Christ by faith. You don't have a different relationship than the Son of God has. You're united to Jesus. And so he has, by the grace of God, made you a son of God by faith. To as many as received Jesus, he gives the right to be called children of God. He sends forth the Spirit of God into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father, because he's made us both children and heirs of God. And so your faithfulness is tied to fulfilling Jesus' call on your life, not some arbitrary measure of success out there because you've already arrived as a son. You don't need to attain to some kind of specific measure of faithfulness or ministry that you've put on yourself. You are called before anything else to be loved by God and to belong to Jesus and then to faithfully take up his call on your life. And I think one of the greatest tactics of the enemy is to make you navel gaze, to wonder if you're doing enough, if you are enough, if you're really fulfilling what you should be doing, and you're, you're constantly staring at yourself. And so it's going to be a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you're looking at yourself, you can't be fixing your eyes on Jesus. And so this is a call. Remember Jesus. Look up and remember who you are in him. Before you do one thing after you leave this place, you're his. So remember Jesus. Remember who you are in him. And lastly, remember that God is love and that God is God. This is really important. God is love. He's good. He loves you. He demonstrates this to you in a thousand mercies every day, whether you can see them or not. But sometimes when life gets dark, you could be battling depression. You could be battling anxiety right now. And it feels so dark and you don't know which way is up and which way is down. And you feel storm tossed and at sea. You have to let the cross of Christ be the lighthouse for your soul. This is why we're singing about Christ, our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Because when you cannot see the love of God, you can look back to the cross where he demonstrated it with finality. He loves you. God demonstrated his love for you in that while you were a sinner, he saw everything he was going to get in you. And he justified you anyways because he loves you. So remember that God is love, but remember that he is God. Psalm 18, verse 30 and 31, David cries out, this God, now David, by the way, is in a dark spot. He's crying out for God to rescue him. He doesn't see God, but by faith, he is proclaiming these truths over his soul. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? What a great question. What a great proclamation over your life. Who is God but the master? And if he's the master, then my role is to be consigned to what he wants for my life. Write down Romans 11, verse 33 through 36, the, the riches of the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are beyond finding out. But we know that he's good. And I think about this. Whenever I read or think through stuff like this, I think about times in our life that have been hard where it felt like the bottom fell out or specifically when we had our first miscarriage. And I remember Kayla in tears writing out, this is what I know. This is not injustice with God. He can do me no wrong because he's good. And all of his ways are perfect. And so I will have this as a steadfast anchor for my soul that God is in control and that God is good. And you have to know both of those things when the enemy comes to tempt you with self-pity and discontentment and doubt in the goodness of God. God is in control over the circumstances of your life. There is not one thing in your life that God is not completely sovereign over. And he is good. And these truths you have to hold together, not intention, just not trying to balance each other out. He's, he's good and he's in control. So you have to know that what we're saying needs to reverberate through the halls of our heart this week. It's not just as it pertains to your death or to your ministry, but in all the circumstances of your life, as the Lord has assigned to each. And we know from Romans 8 that he works everything together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and that that good, verse 29 says, is the conformity of your life to Jesus's. That is what he's doing in any and every circumstances. And so sometimes the Lord gives and sometimes the Lord takes away. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is delivered and James is killed. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel's delivered in the lions, but Hebrews chapter 11 says that some were torn apart by lions. How many went to the Colosseum praying for a Daniel-like moment only to be ravaged? by the lions. And we say with Job, the Lord, is, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Daniel's friends kept in the fire. Others burnt at the stake. He is Lord, as the Lord assigns to each. Psalm 84, uh, verse 11 and 12, the psalmist writes, "'No good thing does he withhold "'from those who walk uprightly, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So that, that psalm is not saying because you walk so righteously before the Lord, he will reward you according to your righteousness and give you all these good things. He's saying, no, 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 no. For us in Christ, we have been united to Christ and have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we can know that he will only do what is truly good for you. No good thing does he withhold from his children? So we have to have that be the way that we interpret life. We don't interpret this verse by the circumstances of our life. We interpret our life by the steadfast anchor of God's word. And we know if it's not this, it's better. If it's not what I'm longing and praying and asking God for, if I'm waiting another day for this, it's because it's better. Blessed is the one who hopes in God's word and not in his circumstances. Blessed is the one who trusts God's promises and not what his eyes can see. And so I want you to know justice responded well, ultimately. I think the message of justice's life 
is that God is not done with you. There's work for you to do. Church history records that Justice went on to be the bishop of a village called Beth Gabra, and he served the Lord faithfully. It's a small place. It's about the size of Brattleboro. And according to a story from a second century uh, historian, theologian, Origen, Justice bore witness to Christ in front of Nero and was supposed to be executed. And then the Apostle Paul appears to Nero in a dream and it freaks Nero out so bad he lets Justice go. Eventually, Beth Gabra was sacked by the Emperor Vespasian, the one that arose after Nero. And Justice was martyred for bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus, like the rest of the apostles. But how many of the 10,000 that were slain by the emperor's forces came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ because of the ministry of justice? And so what I want you to hear and what I want you to know over your life is that it wasn't better or more spiritual for justice to have the title of apostle and to have that ministry than it was for him to have this ministry. It would have been disobedience for him to try to work his way into being one of the 12. Instead of taking this seemingly small, seemingly insignificant assignment, but the spiritual reward of following Jesus and faithfully taking up his assignment will be way greater for him in eternity than having his name etched on a stone at the foundation, his name up in lights, but because he disobeyed his master. So I want to encourage you, you do not know the blessing that God has wrapped inside of the no or the not yet that he's giving you right now. You don't know. But what you can know that he wraps in every gift that he ever gives is the gift of conformity to the image of Jesus. That is what he has for you as one of his children is he is giving you with your present circumstances the gift of treasuring Jesus more than you ever have before. And this is the secret to contentment in any and every circumstance. It's it's what we read before. The Lord is my portion and my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places because wherever else he's given me, he's given me himself. I have him. And so I can be content. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4 when he says, I know how to have plenty and how to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me Christ, being my strength, has taught me the secret of contentment in any and every circumstance. I know how to be a Matthias, and I know how to be a Justice through Christ who gives me strength. And so I want to ask a couple questions in conclusion, and I'll invite the music team to come back up. The question is, is Christ enough for you? Is he enough? Or do you need Jesus plus that thing that you've been longing for? Or in just the daily moments of your life, maybe you're not discontent or depressed or envious on a massive scale, but self-pity snakes you every day. And the question is, is Jesus enough in the midst of the hardships and all the unfair circumstances of your life? Are you content to faithfully taking up the assignment that he gives you each day. Second question, will you choose love over envy? Or another way of saying it, will you choose the way of the cross and dying to yourself over self-pity? 
I think about Elizabeth Elliot talking about difficult circumstances and saying, see in it another chance to die. See in it another chance to say no to yourself and yes to Jesus. He is forming Christ in you. But so often we want him to form Christ in us alongside of us. And Jesus will not cohabitate the throne of your heart. So we have to decrease and him increase. And then when you trust God and his goodness in the midst of answers you don't like, in the midst of bitter providences, in the midst of still waiting on him for that thing that you've been asking him for, And so the invitation is wide open this morning. Come, you weary and brokenhearted and discouraged and weak, and let Christ bear your burden. His yoke is easy. His burden is light because he takes all the burdens that are on you and he lifts them up off of your shoulders so that you would cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. All of his no and not yet in your life is not because he's forgotten about you. It's because he's got a yes for you somewhere else. And so you can trust him. I'm going to close out with this. Uh, oh, I guess I'm inviting Eric to come back up. Sorry, guys. Um, I'm going to close out with the excerpt from this hymn written by William Cooper called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to this. You can close your eyes and just take this in in a spirit of prayer and hear this from the spirit of God to you ye fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head judge not the Lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Father, Lord, we bow ourselves before you. Jesus, we grovel at your feet. You are the master. Spirit, would you come and search our hearts? Show us ways where we have grumbled against you. All of our grumbling has, is grumbling against you in the wilderness. The people grumbled against you, longing to go back to Egypt. And it says you heard it. It was not good for them. God, take out of our hearts every craving that is not of you and replace it with a desire to cry out with all of our hearts from the bottom of our hearts, Father, not what I will, but what you will be done. May we faithfully take up the call to follow you without looking across to sing what you're doing in somebody else's life when we take up our assignments from our master. In Jesus' name, amen.